everyone, you're listening to Bionic Bug Podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I discuss the latest news about emerging technology, read chapters from Bionic Bug, and explore the real-life technologies featured in my novel. We'll discuss where fiction meets reality in the future. Hey everyone, welcome back to Bionic Bug Podcast. You are listening to episode number 32. This is your host, Natasha Badma, fiction author, futurist, and national security expert. I'm recording this episode again on November 25, 2018. I'm thrilled to deliver a bonus episode this weekend. Uh, This is to make up for the one that we missed earlier in November. Um, So I hope you enjoy the double episode this weekend. Just one additional headline for today, also along the the same theme um, that I covered on the last episode, um, The Human Brain is a Time Traveler, published in the New York Times Magazine this weekend. This is a fascinating piece, and it is worth reading several times. Um, It examines the inner workings of the human brain and how AI might augment or replace our ability to analyze the past and predict the future. So the article begins uh, with looking at neuroscience in the 1990s when scientists wanted to use the scans of the brain's resting state as the control to compare to scans of the brain doing certain activities. The theory was that the brain uses different amounts of energy depending on the activity. But as it turned out, the brain's resting state was more active than the brain's active state, so it was a really bad control. This revelation was one of the first hints of what would become a revolution in our understanding of human intelligence. So when our brain is resting, it engages in time travel, um, and that's unique to being human. So what does time travel mean for us? It's our ability to um, go back in time and imagine things that occurred in the past. Imagine how, how we felt, imagine the atmosphere of the situation, Um, It also refers to our ability to imagine ourselves in the future and to plan for future prospects. And this ability is one thing that sets Homo sapiens apart from other mammals. The seemingly trivial activity of mind wandering is now believed to play a central role in the brain's deep learning, the mind sifting through past experiences, imagining future prospects, and assessing them with emotional judgments. This is incredibly important to our success on this planet. And um, that's where this article starts out, but then it goes to examine how AI and machine learning might come to support human decision-making and potentially replace it. Um, Very interesting. But for me, the most stunning revelation of this article was in its conclusion. And there it talked about our use of smartphones preventing our brains from entering its resting state. Before smartphones, how did we spend our downtime? Um, it's hard to remember. I, I believe I did. A, I spent a lot more time reflecting on the events of the day or the week and planning for the future. So what are the consequences for filling all of our gaps for human time travel with the use of smartphones? If we're no longer thinking and analyzing the past and no longer thinking about the future, instead we're using our smartphone to look at social media, um, play games, if time travel is key to our being wise as human uh, humans, are we becoming dumber? And that's the question I'll leave with you today. Let's turn to Bionic Bug. Uh, last week, Lara had a strange conversation with Fiddler. Let's find out what happens next. Chapter 32, The Files. 
The giant space saver facility consisted of rows and rows of ground level self-storage units, each with a bright orange garage door. At the front gate, a large green neon sign illuminated the darkness and directed customers to the front office. Lara parked her bike out front and entered through the glass door to find an attendant sound asleep with his head resting on the reception desk. The air reeked of something sweet and putrid, much like the dark alley behind her old high school where the pothead smoked at recess. Excuse me, sir, Lara whispered, not wanting to startle him. She held her nose to prevent the strong odor from overwhelming her. Hello? The twenty-something attendant with long, messy dreads sat up straight, rubbing his bloodshot brown eyes. What? Who? He wore a scruffy plaid shirt, old jeans, and a name tag with the company logo. When the kid finally focused his sights on Lara, he squinted at her and snorted. What do you want? I'm looking for Unit 506, Lara said. Can you tell me where it's located? Ma'am, can't you read that sign? What sign? Lara gave him a confused look. It says self-storage, he enunciated each word slowly. That means you can go find your unit yourself. Lara stood there and continued to stare at him, waiting for his assistance. He rolled his eyes and yawned. Unit 506 is located in the aisle three. Turn right when you exit and proceed to the third row of units. The signs indicate the unit numbers. You know how to look up numbers posted on doors, right? Lara threw him a nasty glare. Thank you. That wasn't so hard, was it? Kids these days. She turned on her heels and exited the office. A fresh, cool breeze greeted her outside, and she eagerly took a deep breath. The full moon shone from a clear sky, casting eerie shadows on the cement in the parking lot. When she reached the third row of units, she turned the corner and stopped dead in her tracks. A shiny black BMW convertible with the Maryland plate 19024K was parked about midway down the row. Her pulse spiked, sending adrenaline through her body. She wasn't sure who it would be, Linda or Dr. Stepanoff. Either way, she had walked into a party she wasn't invited to, and the hosts weren't going to be friendly. Loud noises came from an open unit located across from the car. Someone is searching Sally's unit. Drawing her gun, Lara stalked toward the unit, keeping her body as close to the wall as possible. When she reached the edge of the open unit, she listened carefully. Against the background of crickets and distant traffic, the rustling noises indicated the presence of only one person. Lara looked up and down the empty rows of units. No one else in sight. Here goes nothing. Swinging around the corner, Lara pointed her gun into the unit and shouted at a large man dressed in a suit. Freeze! Put your hands where I can see them or I'll shoot. With his back toward her, the pudgy man with white hair froze in his place, dropping the file he was holding and raising his hands slowly. Several loose papers floated to the cement floor below. Lara surveyed the unit. A dim light bulb threw some light on the clutter in the small space. Several filing cabinet drawers hung open, papers strewn about everywhere. He clearly not found whatever he was looking for. Please don't shoot, he cried out. The accent was faint, but she recognized it. Turn around slowly. Keep your hands in the air, Lara demanded. He turned toward her. She was right. The old man wearing thick-rimmed glasses and a bow tie was Dr. Stepanoff. A look of recognition flashed across his face when he saw her. Where's Linda? Lara asked. Linda who? Don't play dumb with me. I saw the same BMW at Beautific Creations, Lara pointed to the car. Stepanoff's face became pale. 
I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm talking about your relationship with Lyndon Maxwell. I don't know her. Stepanov kept his hands raised. Then why were you at her apartment yesterday? Lara pressed. Stepanov's eyes widened. I wasn't. I was at work the entire day. How do you explain the car then? What about my car? I took the metro to work, so I was at home in my garage. Interesting coincidence. I saw an identical black BMW convertible with the same plates at Linda's apartment yesterday. In fact, she took off with it, escaping pursuit by the FBI. Stepanov's mouth fell open. I don't know anything about that. And you're sure you want to stick with that story? Stepanov nodded his hand, head vehemently. How do you explain the identical plates? Lara asked, her eyes narrowing. I don't have a clue. Maybe the plates are fake. You need to check the VIN number to make sure the car belongs to the plates. Damn it, Rob. You never called me with that info. Lara put one hand on her hip and held her gun in place with the other. You expect me to believe you? Stepanov shrugged his shoulders helplessly. I don't know what else to tell you. How about you tell me what the hell you're doing in Sully's storage unit? His lips moved, but no sound came out. If you don't answer all of my questions satisfactorily, I'm ready to use this, she motioned with her gun. Please don't hurt me. Sully gave me a key, I swear. A panicked look spread across his ashen face. It was not the look of a cold-blooded killer. Still, Lara found his presence odd and unsettling. Lara lowered her gun slightly. I'm good friends with Sully, and I had no idea the two of you knew each other. Tell me the truth. What are you doing here? Stepanov's lower lip trembled. He told me he feared for his life. Sully said if he died, he wanted me to help find his killer. What? Lara's mouth fell open. She swallowed hard, a painful tightness constricting her throat. Sully confided in Stepanov and not me? She shook her head. I don't believe you. Surrounded by stacks of case files, Ste Stepanov panted out of breath, and tried to steady himself, but the stack next to him fell over, sending papers flying in all directions. Look, Sully gave me the key to the storage unit. He told me to find a file that would prove who killed him. Stepanov held out the Star Wars R2-D2 keychain, the last in the set Lara had given Sully. I've been coming out here every night for several weeks, combing through these files in search of evidence, and I found nothing. His voice had a trace of desperation. Honestly, I have no idea what I'm looking for. Sully promised to leave me clues in the journal in a lockbox at DARPA, but when I looked for it, it was gone. So I'm literally searching in the dark here. I found his journal, Lara said flatly, and it burned up in the fire before I could read all his entries. You did? Stepanov looked relieved. Thank God, I thought this Cybershop character might have gotten to it first. Lara nodded. It was in a lockbox, just as you said. Sully put the entries on a burner phone. Tell me how he had access to DARPA? Stepanov nodded. I made him an ID card. I wanted it. I wanted to make sure he'd have access to the lockboxes and could do the drop when he got the chance. Lara rubbed her chin. He did help Sally. He had, she had so many questions and she didn't know where to start. When did you first meet Sally? It's a bit of a long story. Perspiration shone on his wide brow. I've got time, Lara said, relaxing her stance and I'd like to hear everything from the beginning. Stepanov gave her an uncertain look. Okay, well, we believed someone within NSA or DARPA used the pseudonym Cybershop to sell classified technology. I think the real culprit misdirected Sully, who followed the evidence until it led him to me. Lara's eyes grew large. You think someone is setting you up? Stepanov nodded. At first, Sully thought I was involved in the scheme. He monitored my local post office and took pictures of my car parked outside. 
Sully looked up my license plate and paid me a visit at my house, thinking I was the leak. He accused me of renting a P.O. box at the post office. And did you? Laura asked. Well, yes, I did, but not for the reason Sully thought. I rented a P.O. box to protect my identity online, but Sully thought I was using it to send and receive mail from illicit activities on the dark web. I had a postal address from a package... He had a postal address from a package sent by Cybershop. I showed him my records to prove it was not mine. Did Sully believe you? Laura asked. I think so. I mean, I'm here, aren't I? When Sully confronted me, I explained to him that I had worked for the NSA and that we were on the same team. Several weeks ago, Sully contacted me and told me he was worried someone might kill him. He had a working theory about Cybershop's identity, but was not ready to go to the authorities. That's when Sully gave me the key to a storage unit. And did he share his theory with you? Laura raised her eyebrow. Her thoughts were spinning in all directions. Stepanoff's story sounded plausible, but something didn't feel right. Why would Sully trust him? No, he answered. He never explained it in detail. He said it would be in the journal entries. Another thing bothered her. Then why didn't you help me when I came to you? Stepanoff stared at his feet. I didn't trust you. Sully didn't mention you. For all I knew, you were Cybershop. Did you know about Justine's investigation? Laura asked. My colleague, Justine? Of course I know about it. He waved his hand dismissively. She was obsessed with a senior analyst at NSA named Frank Moore. You see, I was Frank's supervisor. I suspected they were having an affair. Well, at least until he died in that terrible car crash. Then Frank came under suspicion for selling top-secret technology to the Russians and anyone who would pay the steep price. For a long time, the NSA and FBI suspected Frank's wife, Anita, to be his accomplice. Then Justine had the audacity to accuse me of having something to do with Frank's death, or at minimum with Cybershop's illegal activities. She calls me all sorts of trouble at work. To escape the toxic environment, I went on detail assignment to DARPA. And then Justine followed me there. You might now understand why we don't get along so well. Laura furrowed her brow. She wasn't sure if she bought Stepanoff's story. It made sense but so did an alternate version of the facts. If Stepanov was Cybershop, he could know all the same information and be trying to squeeze himself out of a sticky situation. Stepanov could have misled Sully about the purpose of his P.O. box, stolen Sully's storage unit key, seen Sully hide the burner in the lockbox on video footage, and lied about knowing Linda. It all came down to the license plates. Were they real or fake? Damn it, Rob! Do you think Frank committed treason and sold the technology to the Russians? Stepanov shrugged. The evidence the NSA had against Frank and Anita was pretty strong, but there was no smoking gun. Either they're guilty and destroyed the incriminating evidence, or they were set up by a brilliant mastermind. How do you know you're not the how do I know you're not the mastermind? Laura asked. Without warning, the lights went off, pitching her into complete darkness. Before her eyes could adjust, a blunt object walloped her on the back of the head knocking her to the ground. Hearing the sound of slamming doors and squealing tires, her vision blurred with stars and then went black. When she pulled herself up from the pavement, Lara had no idea how long she'd been out. She dug her smartphone out to look at the time. At least an hour had passed. As she braced herself on the side of the unit, her head throbbed mercilessly. The black BMW convertible had disappeared. Did I let Sully's killer escape? Is the answer here among these endless piles of paper? It would take hours, if not days, to search through everything carefully. Exhausted and unable to think straight, Lara closed the garage door of the unit 
locked it, and staggered toward her motorcycle, trying to quiet the drumming in her head. I'll come back tomorrow. Lara pulled her smartphone from her pocket and started dialing Detective Sanchez. As she threw her leg over her bike, the loud rumble of an engine startled her. A gust of wind whipped past her as a van pulled up, screeching as it put on the brakes. Before she had time to think, someone was wearing a mask jumped out, grabbed her from behind, put a hood over her head, and pulled her into the van. In the struggle, her smartphone slipped from her hand and shattered on the cement beneath her. Lara struggled and kicked, but her assailant was too strong. She, he shoved her to the floor of the van and kicked her in the stomach, causing her to cry out in pain. A sharp ache in her stomach made her nauseous. Her attacker yanked both of her arms behind her back and tightened plastic ties around her wrists. Then he did the same to her ankles. She heard the side door of the van slam shut. The passenger door opened and closed. Seconds later, the engine took off at high speed, the tires squealing. At the front of the van, Lara could hear the muffled voices of two men arguing. One sounded older than the other. She thought she recognized the younger voice, but she couldn't make out the substance of the conversation. Putting her ear to the floor of the van, Lara focused on the sounds of the city in an attempt to decipher where they were going. She didn't think they had driven over any bridges, so chances were they were still in Washington, D.C. or nearby Maryland. After about 30 minutes, the van screeched to a halt. Both front doors clicked open and slammed shut. The men refrained from speaking to each other. The side door of the van opened and cold rush air rushed in. A strong hand grabbed her arm and she detected a sweet scent that smelled like jasmine. The last time I smelled that... Ashton? Lara asked. Sit up, a gruff voice said, ignoring her question. Lara tried to sit up, but the black bag over her head disoriented her. Between the pain of getting kicked in the stomach and her restraints... She could only prop herself up on one elbow. I can't. The man shoved his arms underneath her armpits and tugged on her as hard as he could. Her feet dragged across the floor of the van. As he pulled her out of the vehicle, Lars hip hit the side of the sliding door, sending a sharp pain down her leg. The man dropped her onto this cold cement. Her feet landed with a thud on the ground and she toppled over sideways. He cut the ankle ties and yanked Lars to her feet, pushed her forward. Still wearing the hood, Lara couldn't see where to step on the rough pavement, and she stumbled a few times over the bumps and grooves. A heavy steel door opened in front of her. Watch your step, the gruff voice said. Two stairs. The man steadied her as she climbed the stairs and entered the building. Inside, Lara smelled a mix of industrial odors. There was a dinging and the sound of steel scraping against concrete. The man shoved her, and she stumbled several steps until she hit a railing. Her hands could feel an iron-grated wall. The floor jerked, and a high-pitched squeal sounded as the space moved upward. An industrial elevator? Maybe this is a warehouse of some kind. A breeze drifted through the grated walls, and she guessed the elevator was large enough to carry freight. The elevator moved slowly and rattled when it reached the right floor. When the door opened, the man shoved her forward, down a hallway, into a small space that felt like a closet. The humid air smelling of lemon-scented cleaning supplies. She fell to the floor, the thud of the door closing behind her and sealing her fate. Thanks for listening to the Bionic Bug Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Natasha Bajma.
See you next week.